Last week, we started a series. That series is on holiness. And we said the first week, we've got to understand the holiness of God because this sets the stage for everything else. And we said God is holy. He calls his people to be holy. What do the scriptures mean when they say that God is holy? God is unique. He is unlike anyone else. He stands in the solitude of himself. And he is absolutely morally pure. Not a hint of sin anywhere in him. That's what the scriptures mean when we say God himself is holy. Today, we talk about a battle for holiness because God is holy and he calls his people to be holy. So what does that mean for us? If we are going to engage, if we're going to become holy, I assure you of this, it will be a battle. Now, when I use the term battle, what do you think of? What comes into your mind when you hear the term battle? For some of us, we like history, and so we think of a war that would engage between two countries. We think of World War II or, or Vietnam or something else in which there is these battles that take place on fields. There are guns, weapons, etc. that we have, the strategy. Some of us think about a conversation that just took place with one of our children. Some of us think about what may might take place with a coach or a teacher over a particular grade. We may think of some friendship. We, there might be a lot of thoughts that come out. When we think of battle, though, here's what all of us at least at minimum think of. We think of two sides, don't we? There is one side here, and there is one side here, and then there is a clash of some sort. And one side is either trying to convince the other of their rightness or they are trying to impose their will upon the other one. When I say there is a battle for holiness for the believer, for those who would consider themselves to be followers of Jesus, when I say that there is a battle, I am very clearly indicating there are two very distinct sides. And those sides are these. It is the Spirit of God, and it is anything else. But for today, today and, and for next week, I want to limit it to this. It is the Spirit of God that is inside of us that has created a new man. And then also this is the old man. This is the flesh. This is that which uh, is normal and natural. It is a result of the fall. There is a battle and a clash that will take place between these two. Now, the place we should go right now is Romans chapter 6. But we're going to save it for next week. Because next week we're going to talk about the joy of of walking in holiness, walking in obedience for today. Just what is this battle and are we called to it? And then some of the basics of how it is that we're to fight. Next week, the specifics of how it is that we fight it and walk in joy today, more of the, um, of the, of the, the basics. So two statements for you today that we'll flesh out. Number one, please understand this. Every true Christian, true Christian, anyone who has been redeemed by God, every true, true Christian is holy. So we are holy. On the one hand, we are already holy and cannot add to any of that holiness because we have been made holy by Christ. In fact, we have received Christ's holiness. The only way that we can be made acceptable before God is if Jesus does something on our behalf. So there has never been a single human being that has ever lived that has been able to maintain the standard of God. What is that standard? Absolute moral perfection, purity. 
Not one thought, word, motive, or deed that is contrary to the revealed will of God in the scriptures. Is there any person that says, I have confidence that I've never had a thought, a motive, a deed, or action in any way, shape, or form that violates the revealed will of God in his word? Anyone? Takers? Anyone? You? No? No? I've never met a single person ever in my life that has said, I have never sinned. Never. I've had conversations with lots of folks that would consider themselves to be atheists. They have investigated the claims of Christ. I have never run into any person that has ever said, I've lived everything perfectly. Most people are riddled with shame and guilt. And I have found that the greatest news to give them is actually God can handle your shame. He can exchange his joy for your shame and guilt. There's a battle. However, we are holy. In your Bibles, if you've got it, we're going to read two passages of Scripture. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word that are summaries for this particular thought. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll read 1 Peter chapter 1. Scriptures say this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am holy. All the way in the New Testament, 1 Peter 1, verses 14 and 16, he says this. He's thinking about this particular passage. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. You may be seated. We are holy. We have been made holy because of the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection has been credited to all who come to Jesus by faith, who believe that there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to improve, uh, to impress, etc. So Jesus' righteousness is credited to me. Now, hear this. This is my position. My position before God is flawless. It is sinless. It is stainless. It is holy. That's how God relates to me. It is there because God has declared it to be so. That is my position. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think that is true of my practice? My position is I am holy. My practice, however, does not reflect the fullness of my position. My practice, I assure you, is not flawless, stainless, sinless. Ask my wife, ask my children. It will not take them long to point out multiple examples of how that is not true. Uh, Talking with uh, Judith even just yesterday. And uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And I mean that. She has approached me in many ways over the years with the greatest uh, of wisdom. And she just asked me, why are you angry? And I just have to think and sit. And and, and, and the more I thought and developed, and I've been working through this now for several weeks trying to think this through. and, and, And here's the reason is because I don't think I rest enough in 
this and I get so frustrated with this. But specifically, that is true of my children. Here's what I mean. I have some children right now that I just don't know. I don't see any fruit at all in their lives. I don't see a desire. I don't see a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. I don't see this yearning to get after it in there. We've talked about it. We're open about it. We have dialogue. Every one of my kids have heard the statement from both of us. Son, you do not have to believe what I believe in order for me to love you. You will always have my love. But I want you to know that I'll never stop praying for you. Why? Because I am convinced that the most important thing in life, the only truly essential thing in life is that we are rightly related to God. Everything else is secondary to that. And I am not convinced that each of them would spend an eternity with God at this moment if something were to happen to them. And I freak out. And so rather than resting in on God's promises, on his sufficiency, etc., what I tend to do is I say, okay, well then maybe if I pray longer and harder and with more fervency, then the arm of God will be triggered and moved and then he'll move in on my, on my kids and, and then I'll see the results that I want to see and, and I'll see the hunger they want. So it's really up to how long I'm going to pray and how hard I'm going to pray. And there have been many nights just in 2021 alone in which I haven't slept. Because I think somehow or another, my efforts will force God into doing what I want him to do. Now, I'm much too slick to say that out loud. Don't say it in my prayer. That's what's going on in my heart. Why am I angry? One of the reasons is because, doggone it, I cannot control God. And I really want him to do what I want him to do. Now, that's my issue. That's not yours. That's not Judas. It's not my boy. It's, not, it's nobody's fault but mine. And I got to work through that. I, I assure you, my practice does not match my position. Hebrews 10 verses 12 through 14 says this, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, get this, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? That Christ has already made perfect those who are coming to faith. When we come to faith, we are made perfect. There's nothing more to be added to it in our position. Ephesians, if you have your Bibles uh, open there, I want to spend just a minute or two in this. Uh, we won't dive in deeply like we uh, would normally, but we need to see this. Ephesians chapter 2, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Once our state was completely separated from God. What does that mean? We are enemies of God, both in our minds and also in his. There is a battle between, there is no peace between God and man when we are outside of Christ. There's no shalom. 
There's this battle that takes. He says, remember, this is what you guys were like. Just like the rest of mankind, he's writing here to make sure that the Jewish people understand, hey, just because you were born Jewish didn't give you any, um, any brownie points with God. There's Jewish people that are separated from God just as the, the Gentile world was. All of this is true. We are enemies with God, naturally speaking. And then one of the greatest buts in all of scripture, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. But God, in his depth and richness of mercy, his desire for holiness reaches in in time and space into people that are spiritually dead. Dead means dead. Dead does not mean just merely hurting or, or, or uh, needing a tad bit of help. It means dead, spiritually dead people that are enemies with God. God reaches in in time and space. He touches their hearts. He changes them. And what does he do? He makes them alive with Christ. Now, how much credit can you take for that? How much credit can the dead man who's on the road, the paramedics arrive, they have the pallets here. How much credit can that dead man, dead man take for the, uh, those in, in the medical field shocking the heart back into system? How odd would it be for that person to say, whew, I sure am glad I kept pulling through. I worked hard to get back alive. I'm glad I thought some things through. God, I talked to you. God, I gave you some advice on how to do this. The dude was dead. God, in his richness and his mercy, in the depths of his love and his desire to create a holy nation, a people belonging to himself, to put them on display to his glorious riches, decided to, and he made us alive. Now, the only way we can be made alive is if we have the righteousness of Christ. This is position. By grace, you have been saved. There's nothing that you did in order to make yourself right with God. There's nothing you can do to add to that. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages... He's going to put us on display as trophies of his grace so that all of the cosmos will look in and say, oh God, look what it is that you've done. You are so gracious and merciful and kind. I am compelled to fall at your feet and declare your greatness. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. All of those first nine verses, all about what God has done, what is true, our position in Christ. Verse 10 talks about our practice. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Nine verses on all that God has done. One verse on now. Let's get after it. Rest. Stop trying to earn God's favor. Quit. It will never provide the peace in your soul that you're looking for. You will never do enough. You will never be able to to say no to enough bad things, yes to enough good things, to get to the place where God is going to turn and say, holy cow, you are so magnificent. Now I'm going to embrace you. This is what the scriptures mean. Rest, stop trying to earn God's favor. It's already given to you. On the other hand, now get after it. And let's go work hard at walking in holiness on fighting off the flesh that is eating me alive most days. Fight hard against the anger. Fight hard against the lust. Fight for kindness. Fight for compassion. Fight. It's a battle right here. Rest. He's done everything that's necessary. Fight. Strive. Move. Let's go. Do you see the difference? Then why is it if we have had all of this, why, if, if God has done everything, why is it that we struggle so much with sin? Jerry Bridges in his magnificent book, The Pursuit of Holiness. I just want to recap it, just tell you. This is straight from his book. There's not one original thought that I have right now. Here's what he says. If holiness is so basic to the Christian life, why do we not experience it more in daily living? Why do so many Christians feel constantly defeated in their struggle with sin? He goes on to offer these three reasons. If you're a note taker, take them down. They won't be up on the screen. Our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. Our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. He says it this way. We are more concerned with walking in our own personal victory than we are concerned with how much it grieves and offends a holy God. Our victory is going to be a byproduct of obedience. We're going to spend, that's what next week is going to be about. The goal is not victory. The goal is obedience. Why? Because obedience leads to joy. That's what God desires for his children. First, our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. Secondly, we have misunderstood living by faith. We have misunderstood living by faith. He says it this way, we believe that no effort at holiness is required on our part, but faith and exertion are not mutually exclusive. If you have uh, not heard this before, there's a theologian that gives a fantastic illustration. He talks about um, walking, and he talks about walking with two legs. Now, please, if uh, anyone is, uh, has lost a leg in any uh, way, um, the, the, um, this, this is talking about the normative. Okay? This is not saying that that person has any less value, etc. This is normative. There are two legs in which we walk with. There is the grace of God. And there is the effort of man. 
The grace of God must always take the first step. It is what he has done on our behalf. And so I'm going to move forward trusting in what he has done, trusting that he is actually going to give me the strength to continue walking. But then there's also this leg that must follow. And this takes discipline and hard work and sacrifice. And the effort of man goes into this walk with God. It's the grace of God. It's the effort of man. It's the grace of God. It's the effort of man. That does not apply to our justification. It is the grace of God only. But our practice, this is where it applies. Grace plus effort. God's grace is the secret card in both of these equations. You do hear that, don't you? If God's grace is not present in in both of these, then nothing happens. But it's a two-legged walk. I I suggest that many of us try to get into a mode in which we're doing a one-legged walk. And so we say, God, I'm going to walk with you, and it's just grace, grace. And it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I say. It's all grace. It's all forgiven. Grace, grace. And we wonder why it is that we're struggling to actually relate to God. We wonder why it is that we can't figure out how to have intimate, deep fellowship with him. Others of us say, God, I'm trying. I'm meeting. Where are you? I'm trying. I'm doing everything. I'm saying no. I'm saying yes. Where are you? A one-legged race. It's not going to work. Run the race that is set before you. We'll see that here in just a moment. How Big picture, how we do that. It's a two-legged race. The third thing that Jerry Bridges says in terms of why it is that we don't walk more, um, uh, experience holiness in daily living. The third reason is we do not take some sin seriously. We tend to categorize sin. And we categorize sin into areas that are unacceptable sin. We are not going to deal with that in our life or in anybody else's life. Anyone who practices this in our church, we are going to hammer them in love, of course. And then we have other sins that are pretty tolerable, especially when when I struggle with them. We don't take some sins seriously is what he says here. There are a dozen illustrations that we could think of right now, but here's the one that I I just would love to... I I shared this at a youth camp years ago, and um, the fortunate thing was it was able to be done in true practice, and so hopefully you'll get a kick out of it. We made some brownies for these students, and these brownies were really, really good. And they're gobbled them up. They're students. There are high school students who can eat like a million pounds in food and not gain a single pound in weight. They burn it off. Okay, so there, I don't even remember how many brownies we made, but there were a ton of brownies. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about some other type of brownies. Nothing like that was in the brownies from a few weeks ago. What we did, though, is I just asked them. I just t- talked about sin and what we tolerate and what's in our lives, and some of us will not tolerate this, and so we'll, we'll hammer other people, and so we bring judgment and condemnation when they struggle with this particular sin. But over here, we don't say anything about So I'm, I'm talking about this, I'm saying this, and, 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 and then I said, it's like, it's like a brownie. How would you like to enjoy a brownie if I told you, hey, in this brownie, 
It's not a whole lot. There's only a little bit in there, but there's actually a little bit of dog poo that's in the brownies. Would you want to eat this brownie? I mean, it's just a little bit. It's not much. I mean, most of the brownie is good. And the students' faces, it was priceless. And then a few students start poking at each other and going, okay, four students immediately threw up. It was awesome. And if you've ever served in youth ministry, you know what I mean by that. Students are losing their minds because of it. And I was able to come back and say, by the way, we didn't put any dog poo in your brownies. I just wanted you to see how little you would tolerate. You know what Paul says? I count all things rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus. Do you have any idea how offended a holy God is by the tiniest and smallest of sins? It may not be a big deal to you, but I assure you to a holy, morally pure, unique God, it is offensive to the core. He cannot stand it. He cannot tolerate it. He cannot put up with it. He is so angered by it that he poured out his wrath on Jesus because of all of the little sins. So one of the reasons we don't experience more holiness in our life is we're not all that bothered by the sins that we struggle with. But boy, I sure am bothered by the ones that you struggle with. In particular, the ones that I don't struggle with, that you do struggle with, Oh, man, do you really need to grow? Now, what's the danger when I say this? Because I know there's a group of people here who are riddled with guilt and shame. And you hear this and you say, great, there's another person that's now pointing out my sin. There's a group of us here that need, you need to, that first step that you take probably needs to look like this. The grace of God, the effort of man. The grace of God, the effort of man. You probably need to sit long and hard and just, God loves you. I hope you've got a copy of Gentle and Lowly because that book over and over and over again just talks about the love of Christ. You probably need to sit on that to an unusual degree. You probably need to spend 90% of your time on how much God loves you and 10% of the time talking about your sin. Others of us who are far more arrogant in nature, who think far more of ourselves than we should, probably need to say, grace of God is it's good. We also need to say, grace of God is way more important than I thought it was. And we probably need to spend far more time thinking about our sin. I don't know where you are on the spectrum. You probably know yourself. Both legs are necessary. Both are needed if we're going to experience a practice of holiness. Now, finally. We are holy, we strive to be holy. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness 
without which no one will see the Lord. I'm confident the writer of Hebrews here when he says everyone is actually referring to everyone within the confines of the body of Christ. He may indeed be implying more than that, but I think he's specifically referring to uh, be at peace. Strive. That verb that he uses right there is to pursue. It is a much stronger word than other words that are used. The other word that is used often is seek. Uh, Peter uses that in 1 Peter 3.1. It draws attention to an intensity and an urgency, the word here that the writer of Hebrews uses, that this is a much, we are compelled, strive for peace. I just want to ask the question. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but is there anybody right now that you need to strive for peace with? An estranged child? A distant parent or sibling? A coworker? A spouse? Is there a friend that you have ignored? You're not striving for peace. This requires an urgent sense of hard work and diligence. Peace isn't going to just happen. And hear this, this right here, a battle that takes place, this is not peace. This is a lack of conflict. And peace is where we work through conflict. Hard work, diligence, pain, tears, exercise. We work hard in order to do this. This is peace. It might not always be possible. There might be some circumstances in which someone has been so hurt, abused, etc., that this right here is the best possible scenario. This honors God the most. But usually speaking, what God desires is this. Strive for peace with everyone. But look at this. Strive for the holiness of without which no one will see the Lord. Now let this sink in. If holiness does not mark your life, if there is not a pursuit of holiness, if you don't sense in your heart a stirring in order to walk with God in such a manner that you're obeying him, that you are fighting the flesh, you are battling, you're engaging, you're saying no to sin and yes to righteousness. If you don't see that battle taking place, it's a pretty good indication that you are not rightly related to God. You may be moral. You may be ethical. You may be helping people. You may be doing some good things in the culture and in the world. But if you don't have a desire to strive for holiness, you probably are not rightly related to God. He says, without holiness, we won't see the Lord. Where else do we see this in the scriptures? Listen to this, Psalm, Psalm 15, 1 through 5. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach, a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt, meaning he keeps his word, and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Moved from where? Away from the presence of God. 
What is the psalmist saying? That it's our conduct that earns the favor with God? Nope. He's saying our conduct is proof that we've trusted in what Christ has done and God has moved in such a manner in our heart that he's caused the desires of our heart to change. And we no longer desire to walk away from him, to be an enemy from him. We desire to be in his presence. And in his presence are people who strive for holiness. That's what the psalmist is saying. When there is a heart change, my practice will follow perfectly Oh, good grief. You know how strong the flesh is? This lifelong battle. Remember Paul's one who says, I want to do it, but I don't. In fact, I do what I hate doing. That which I really, really want to do, I, I find I don't do it. Who's going to rescue me? Jesus. Where else do we see that those in the presence of the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Close with this one passage. If you got your Bibles, open there with me. Just a minute that we'll spend on it, but it's Hebrews chapter 12 and just the first three verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What are we called to? There is this race that he talks about. He uses athletic terms in there. He's talking about this great cloud of witnesses. Who is this cloud of witnesses? It is those that were mentioned in the previous chapter in, in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11. All the saints in the Old Testament that knew, they understood to be rightly related to God requires faith in what God can do on my behalf. And belief that there's someone coming later on that's going to make everything right on our behalf. That's what was required. Faith made is what God used to, to bring about righteousness to people. Jesus makes people righteous. Faith is the avenue by which we embrace that. Same in the Old Testament as in the New. We have this whole cloud of witnesses that are, what is witness? Witness does not mean that they're all up in heaven. They're going, whoo, let's go look down there and see what Matt's doing, what's Scott doing, what's Randy doing. I'm for you, man. Come on, let's go. I doubt they're looking at us at all. They're so consumed with God and Jesus. What, what, a, what a disappointment it would be to look down on us. I don't think they're there. I don't think they're there at the end of the finish line like we would gather for our kids. Come on, you can do it. They are cloud. It's a cloud of witnesses that have gathered. The witness is to us to look back and to see what those who have gone before us are capable of doing when they walked by faith. God did ridiculous things in them and through them. It wasn't because they were awesome. They were very much not awesome. But because they projected, they, they looked, they, 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 they gazed, they stared at what God could do. God used them. We're surrounded by this great 
cloud of witnesses. So now what should we do? Let us throw off all the sin, everything that so easily entangles us. It's like an athlete that's getting up, he's getting ready to move on, taking off the outer garment so that he can run the races for him. Everything that's gonna slow me down, I'm taking it off. What's that gonna slow me down? It's sin, it's pride. It, it, whatever is in yours, let's throw it off. And then let us run, exert, try, sweat, Understand that you are going to work so hard that you're going to get worn out and tired, exhausted, sometimes not knowing if God is actually going to show up in the process. But you're going to keep believing that he will, even though you don't feel like he will. And the moments in which you're not sure that he is with you, you're going to treat him as if he is with you. And so you're going to take another step and you're going to move and you're going to run with the grace of God and the effort that you're putting forth. Throw off everything that so easily entangles us and run with perseverance the race that is set out before us. How? Please hear this. Next week's the specifics. Please catch this. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. The goal is not a better and improved me. The goal is not someone who has less sin in their life so that I can have less sin in my life. The goal is Jesus. The end is Jesus. The means is Jesus. The strength is Jesus. Look to Jesus when you are running, because I assure you, if you try at all to run in such a manner that you're throwing off everything that so easily entangles you, you will get worn out. But Jesus has unlimited patience. He has unlimited power. He has unlimited grace. He has unlimited mercy. And so look to him. Every now and then, what we should be doing is we should be glancing at our sin. We should be. God, deal with it. Help me. But we should be gazing, staring at Jesus. Because the goal, what the Father is obsessed with, is molding you, shaping you, conforming you into the image of Jesus. His goal is not to make the best possible you. His goal is to make you like his son. Can you imagine what would happen if Wildwood Church rested in this, didn't try to add to this, but then said, oh God, root it out in me. Show me what you want for me. Show me what you want out of me. God, help. And what if we looked towards Jesus? And what if our goal was not to try to create a moral Tallahassee, but to take the gospel of Jesus to the people of God, to the people who are currently hostile towards God? What if our goal was to get them connected to Jesus rather than trying to get them improved? Can you imagine the impact? And if our goal is to get people connected to Jesus, I can't imagine God not saying, I tell you what, those folks don't get a lot of things, 
They're missing it on several fronts. But I'm going to bless that because they're after the promotion of my son. We are holy. We strive to be holy. Next week, we'll talk about the specifics of how.